but also more than anything, you're really challenging the norm of who can go scuba diving. And people with disabilities are, are really interested in just trying to normalize blindness, normalize deafness, normalize autism, whatever, whatever element they have, whatever challenges they're going through, they just want to normalize it and not feel like it's going to hinder them in any way. And in, in a lot of ways, some people are like, I want to do all the things that... That's Anesti Vega, world-class scuba diver who's dedicated his life to protecting the ocean and helping those with disabilities enjoy its natural wonders. Many more stories from this man of the sea today on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. Welcome, Anesti. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, shout out to the legendary George Peterson for the connection. Absolutely. Uh, legendary with a capital L for sure. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I haven't spent a ton of time in the water with that guy, but just known him through various means and people and interacted with him at Modern Bay Aquarium. I guess you've done quite a bit of diving with him. I haven't actually even met him in person. We've only known each other virtually oh. through this whole <laughs> pandemic, but we've, we've worked a lot together now that I'm on a committee for the AAUS foundation that he's the president of. So uh, really cool dude. And I've, I've learned a lot about him listening to your episode with him and uh, working with him so far. So really, really cool dude. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that's one of the cool things about, I mean, all the different ocean um, domains and sports, you know, areas and diving is one of those is that like the real, the community aspect is always so cool. I think it's one of the things that we'll probably get a lot into this later that draws us to the water. It's just not our own need to be wet and do our thing, but also just like the community that you seem to develop around you, whether they're like down the street from you and in the water with you all the time, or just like virtual, you'd never even met them, but just a conversation you see eye to eye with everything. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Divers are, are kind of a unique breed in that, you know, we, we have our own language, right? Our own sign language of sorts, uh, you yeah. know, under, underwater sign language. And we can recognize a dive flag from like a mile away, uh, <laughs> both the diver down flag and the, and the alpha flag. And so we're always like, hey. And then whenever we see, you know, scuba diving in movies or TV shows, it's like, ah, they're doing it wrong. This is how it's supposed to be done. Like we're one of those types. <laughs> but when we meet each other, there's, there's this unique bond too because it's more than just like playing basketball or, or any other sport the inherent nature of scuba diving is one where we have to really look out for each other's safety and, and work in buddy teams. And, and you form these bonds with other divers, knowing that when you're under the water, we got to look out for each other. And that, that transcends uh, during our surface intervals between dives uh, as well. It's a great point. I never really thought about that is that like, it is inherently like you're always looking out for other people. Like I, I, I relate to surfing, which is like the majority of my you know time growing up is probably the one sport I've done the most of. And that's like, you begrudgingly help somebody out. <laughs> it's like, ah, <laughs> Only it's like, like drowning or something. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like a, a kind of a more selfish sport and the diving is very much not that. And it's, you know, uh, it's so that's a good point you made there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we already started talking about diving, which is, I mean, your bread and butter, I mean, in a big part of what we'll focus on today, you know, we'll spend a lot of time on it. Um, but like just recently now, last few days, weeks, months, like where have you been diving? What have you been up to just, you know, recently? Oh man. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's no surprise. We already jumped right into talking about diving. Um, <laughs> people, people will like tell me I, I can come across a little cultish about scuba diving, like wondering if I'm about to make them drink Kool-Aid later or something. But, um, that's an old people joke for you. Gen Zers <laughs> listening out there, but, uh, it, um, you know, it's, uh, I've been diving quite a bit here in Florida. I, I relocated here about 11 months ago to take up, um, uh, a, both a position and uh, a, a college degree pursuit here at the Florida Institute of Technology. And so been doing a lot of pool training with students, uh, bringing them into the fold, uh, doing dives at Blue Grotto predominantly. It's a great area. It's a freshwater Florida. I call it a Florida cenote, but it's basically a glorified sinkhole <laughs> and, uh, of, of freshwater <laughs> that goes down to about 110 feet. But it's, it's great for for training and for visibility they have different platforms at different levels at 10 20 30 feet and so uh we, we go down there and do training uh i haven't done i've done more specialty training more than anything since i've been here i haven't done a lot of like fundamental open water training so uh some of the specialized training that i've gone through myself is adaptive scuba instructor to be able to work with mm -hmm. 
um, adapting and modifying scuba skills for working with people with uh, cognitive and physical disabilities. So I popped up to Georgia for a couple of weekends to, to work on that. And then um, as part of that, I got some extensive full face mask and underwater communications training uh, for people who aren't able to keep a regulator in their mouth. Um, you know, when, when, if, you know, as a result of like cerebral palsy or something like that. Uh, so we, we adapt to full face mask and comms uh, also for, um, for deaf people or blind people uh, underwater. Wow. So there's a lot of adaptations with, with new technologies like that, that, um, that I got really acquainted with. Uh, but then also fell in, uh, into this unique opportunity to be able to work with astronaut candidates around full face mask and underwater mm-hmm. comms. So I had one member at the university reach out and say, hey, I'd love to be able to do some open water training. And so I got her started on the, the e-learning portion. Now we're going to be doing some pool training uh, here later this summer. But it's uh, I was like, you know, well, what, you know, are you just doing, you know, I just kind of had a conversation with her about like what her goals were in scuba. And she's like, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting a PhD here at Florida tech in, uh, astrophysics and, and aeronautics. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, like, you know, so you're just doing scuba for recreation. She goes, well, no, I'm actually got accepted to this, uh, program to be an astronaut candidate to go through more extensive training to get into the commercialized sector of, of space flight, you know, and, and I, I never really put it together because I, I knew conventionally if you wanted to be an astronaut, you'd join NASA. And, you know, if you got accepted, then they'd provide all the training as a government agency and you're good to go. But now with this recent commercialization of spaceflight with SpaceX and Advancing X and Space Harbor, there's this whole new uh, private sector of spaceflight training that includes underwater training, uh, both in terms of how neutral buoyancy applies to microgravity but also with uh, decompression procedures and emergency decompression procedures in spaceflight as well. There are a lot of parallels in learning that through open water and through enriched air nitrox um, that, that apply, including specializations like dry suit and again, full face mask and underwater communications that apply directly to, you know, what uh, astronaut candidates go through. So I've, I've built out a program recently where I've got six students now who are all astronaut candidates training uh, in various forms. Most of them are training in open water right now, but I've got a few more advanced students who are like master scuba divers who are training in like full face mask and underwater comms and dry suit with me um, to be able to be as competitive as possible when applying to these, these space flight programs. That's hot, man. Like you're now you've, you, you have this full spectrum of people you're training and now it's like the high end echelon of everything, like t- potential astronauts and stuff. That must be, must be pretty fun. Yeah. When I became an instructor, it was like, it, it was with the original intention to increase accessibility to scuba. And that's still very much my mission uh, in a lot of ways. And we can talk about that more around working with like coastal indigenous tribes in California, where I first got certified as an instructor and working with their land stewards and, and whatnot. But I knew that I wanted to be more than just an instructor. Like I, I was like, you know, I just, I looked at the conventional structure of what the scuba industry looked like between, you know, what, what a full-time career could be. And there's, there's not many full-time instructors that I've met unless they work at like a, a, a resort like like Maui or Cozumel where, where you have this constant influx of tourists coming in and coming out. And that, that kind of turn and burn isn't what, what was inspiring to me anyway. But then I could work at a scuba shop or I could start my own, which was not a thing at the time. You know, uh, you know, there are other things like I could work for like a, you know, a, a, a regional sales manager for like a manufacturing company like Aqualung or Hewish or something like that. And it was just, you know, it was just uninspiring. And I wanted to find something that was a, a niche that was unique to like the value that I could bring to the table. And coming here to the Florida Institute of Technology that started as an engineering school to create mm-hmm. engineers that, that worked over at Kennedy Space Center the same year NASA was founded in 1958. And that intertwined history that Florida Tech has um, to come here to get an oceanography degree, but also bring all my professional experience of scuba and ocean exploration to the table just kind of seemed to like, uh, you know, the stars aligned, so to speak, uh, in being able to, to find that niche and, and step into that market uh, firmly. And, it, and it's not anything much beyond what I wasn't already teaching, just a little bit of uh, branding difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool, man. Sometimes moon and stars do align <laughs> for us. <laughs> so I'm really interested about the adaptive stuff. I mean, all this is super fascinating. We spent hours talking about it. Um, I had spent 
I think two dives with a fellow who was um, paralyzed from the waist down and it was a couple of shore dives, you know, and, you know, here, and you know, this, and we'll talk more, I think about, you know, Monterey or just California in general can be very cold. Kelpie, it's kind of strenuous and you have a lot of gear on. It's just challenging if you're full, you know, you have, you have full physical capabilities. And here was this guy who came out with, you know, out of the wheelchair, got his gear on all by himself into the water, dove, made it back. And I was just tripping that, you know, and I was really amazed at that. And so talk about the adaptive stuff you're doing. Cause you're talking about physical, but also cognitive people who might not have full senses, you know, that we have. And you said deaf and blind. I mean, spend a little time on that because uh, it's hard enough when you have all that stuff going for you to get in the water and come out safely. And here you are working with folks who are, you know, uh, challenged by that, those things. Yeah. I, I fell into that, uh, that community of sorts, uh, mostly through my social justice work, but also kind of, it just kind of aligned in, in a number of different ways, both with my social justice work back in the Bay area around disability rights uh, and representation, but also as a disabled veteran myself, I served in the army uh, deployed to Kosovo and Afghanistan and a little bit of time in Colombia. And um, I suffer from PTSD and also uh, partial blindness in my left eye. I don't have full peripheral vision in my left mm. eye and lost hearing in my left ear. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm still fairly like high functional in terms of PTSD and the other physical ailments that I have, but it, it put me into, you know, the VA is like just one-stop shop, you know, just groups you together. And I started working with other people with other physical and cognitive disabilities, mostly around PTSD, a little bit of traumatic brain injury as well uh, in various forms uh, of the spectrum of, of the, the impact of TBI on veterans as well. And, you know, really just got involved with like working with them and, and was working with different therapeutic modalities uh, in a number of ways. Uh, through the VA. And I was like, man, scuba could really help with this. And I started re doing some research and found an organization, Diveheart, that works with people with disabilities and has an entire section of their organization dedicated to veterans specifically. And I've been connected with them for a number of years. And I've just been, uh, you know, working with them, learning and whatnot. And then I finally be able to, you know, more recently had the time and the resources and capacity to step into being a full-fledged instructor with them uh, to be able to offer scuba as a therapeutic modality. But my, my first real experience of teaching scuba to someone in, in one of those categories was, uh, was by happenstance, really. I was teaching out of a shop in uh, Santa Clara, which is in, right in the heart of, of Silicon Valley. And so a lot of my students were like, I mean, it was a very high volume store. We had like, I was, I, I certified like over 132 students in my first year as an instructor, which is a lot, only doing wow. it part time. And there in Silicon Valley, it was an interesting mix because we had students that were um, both like had both a boring job because most of them were software engineers at like Facebook, yeah. IBM, yeah. you know, uh, Netflix, Evernote, right? You know, software engineers, software uh, developers, whatever the case may be, where they're staring at a screen eight, 10 hours a day, but also had a lot of disposable income because they had those jobs. So scuba was like <laughs> an adventure to them. Like, yeah, let's go scuba diving. And so they students would come in and they'd be like drop you know, whatever money for the class and then they'd buy their own kit. And sometimes their kits would be like more expensive and higher end than mine as the instructor. <laughs> you know, they got like a three thousand dollar BCD. And I'm like, man, I hope that thing's gold plated on the back or something. <laughs> but um, but, you know, that was that was the norm for for the majority of our students. And some of them were really cool. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And uh, but there was one student who um I could tell something was a little different. It wasn't bad or anything like that. It was just, um, it started out with some social awkwardness when I greeted him. And then as we started to go over to classroom training, because this was before e-learning was really a thing. So we'd have more of the, the classroom interactions, which was really good for getting to know your students. And, uh, and I could tell um, something was a little different. So I pulled him to the side and was like, you know, hey, are there, is there anything I need to know about? You know, um, you know could, I, could I take a look at your medical form? And he's like, yeah, I just want to let you know I, I have autism. I'm on the spectrum, but I'm high functioning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I don't really need any accommodations, but if I, but if I do, I'll, I'll let you know if, if we come to that. And I mean, I've worked with people with autism before, but not in teaching them scuba. So this was my first real experience. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man. And, and, and where I learned how to be a dive master and instructor safety was really driven into us like heavily, like you got to stay focused. You got to pay attention to detail. And I'm like, well, autism is like one of those unique 
sort of things that are that's considered a disability, but it's really not because I've met so many people with, dis- with autism that mm-hmm. have such a very keen focus and, and attention to detail uh, to where, um, you know, I, I, you know, I was interested and inspired to be able to work with this individual. But I called Patty and made sure like, you know, look, it's, he didn't check no on any of the, uh, or yes on any of the medical waivers or anything like that, you know, that would be a contraindication. Uh, but he does have autism and they're like, if, if he can follow your directions and, and do all the skills, then he, he, he can get certified without any restrictions. And I was like, all right. So we, we pushed forward and, and he was a prize student. He was, he was, he was a better student than I was when I was an, I was a terrible student in open water. I can talk a little bit more about that later, but I was a terrible open water student. I feel so bad for my instructor when I went through, um, but he was a prize student, man. It was, it was really such a pleasure and an inspiration to work with him. And, and it, and that's really was like the turning point. Cause I was already in touch with dive heart about training and stuff like that. And I was like, I just certified somebody with autism. Like, this is amazing. I want to do more of this. You know, it's like, it, yeah. that, was, that was more rewarding than, than, you know, that was one of the most rewarding moments of, of my career as an instructor so far. Yeah, I bet. And then you've you've applied that kind of caring and, and just your ability to teach to other, you know, you said um, disabilities. I mean, talk about the blindness for one. I mean, how do you see that blind person when they dive and just their interaction with the water, which is <laughs> it's so highly visual when you're underwater because you can't reach out and see what's that rock or that fish or what's going on around you. So, I mean, describe that interaction. When I'm guiding someone with blindness uh, underwater, it it's one of those things where, I mean, there are some, some adaptations and it takes a ton of communication. That's really key uh, above water to be able to say, Hey, when I, I put my hand on your shoulder, this is what that means. When I, when I squeeze your wrist once yeah. or twice, this is what that means. So there's there's an extra layer of communication because the sight is not involved. And you would think like, well, what's the point of going scuba diving if you can't see? That's what most people want to go down there for. Uh, but there's, scuba diving itself, being submerged in water and being neutrally buoyant mm-hmm. has this really strong therapeutic effect. And to be able to go out in the ocean and be able to do that, you're feeling those effects. You're feeling that therapeutic effect. But also more than anything, you're really – challenging the norm of who can go scuba diving and mm-hmm. and people with disabilities are, are really interested in just trying to normalize blindness normalize deafness normalize autism whatever whatever element they have whatever challenges they're going through they just want to normalize it and not feel like it's going to hinder them in any way and in, in a lot of ways some people are like i want to do all the things that uh tabbies can do tabbies are, mm-hmm. are the nickname for uh, it's a uh, temporarily able-bodied individuals <laughs> which is I which I love because it really shifts the, it really shifts the power dynamics about what really is the norm because yeah, when you think about between cool. babies and the elderly and people with disabilities whether diagnosed or not to have a sort of disability or some sort of challenge is really the norm statistically speaking over people yeah. who are fully able bodied um, right, and even right. then it's it's a fleeting idea because by the time you're 70 you're gonna go back to wearing diapers and and have a walker <laughs> or something you know. I hope not, but I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, odds are there. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it really shifts the narrative, you know, around like yeah. you know, what, what is the norm and for them, you know, and for us, cause I'm, I'm part of that community. We just want to be seen and know that we can, we can function, you know, maybe with some adaptations, some modifications here and there. Um, but that's, that comes with the, hopefully the courtesy and compassion that our society should have for everybody. Yeah, hundred percent. Now that that's so cool. I mean, yeah, that that's just so neat. To, it's one thing I think fulfilling to teach somebody how to scuba dive, and maybe in a lot of those cases, it's their first interaction with the ocean. You've made that connection for them, or helped them make that connection, which will be there forever. Because we know how important our individual connections are with the ocean, and you've, in some cases, have enabled that for somebody. But then you layer on top, you're you're doing that for somebody who most people think they'll even have a shot in hell of ever even going in the ocean. But then here you are putting them in one of the probably the most hardest thing to do, honestly, go underwater and come back up, you know? So I don't know, like the normalization of that, uh, they can see that, man. That's really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Thank you. So then kind of along that thread is you're, you're also helping you work with, veterans, you know, which years so far you're involved with Blue Force, which, you know, connects military veterans with marine research. And so first tell us what that program is, what your role is there, and then we'll, and then move into sort of 
what you see the impacts of this are positively on the veterans that you get into the ocean and, and, and basically engage deeply in scuba diving. Yeah, so the organization is Force Blue. Oh, sorry, um, I said it wrong. Yeah, you said Blue Force. It's all good. Yeah, it happens <laughs> a lot. I'm relatively new to the program. I've just been onboarded. Like last week was my first official week, and I, I, cool. I've only been assigned a couple of tasks so far. So it's, it's going to wrap up here pretty quickly, especially over the summer with a number of things we have going on. Because Force Blue has partnerships with NFL and um, a few other organizations. I don't know if I can mention the names of yet because I don't know if they're fully solidified. But, mm-hmm. but the NFL is definitely one that's public that's out there right now that I, I feel comfortable saying. But, you know, they, they're a powerhouse when it comes to promotion and getting veterans involved. And, and my path to where I'm at with Force Blue really started, like, back in 2018, right when I became an instructor and it started with an organization called USX. So I became an instructor, like I said, to be able to work with indigenous tribes and create more accessibility to, to stewardship of the coastlines, uh, especially around scientific diving for those stewards. And when I was at the vet center back in Oakland, uh, somebody was like, hey, like, have you heard of USX? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And they're like, yeah, check out their website. They've got some cool things going on. That what they do is they take veterans and they get them involved in citizen science uh, in remote and austere environments. So they work with researchers who need data in like the kelp forests of Monterey or, uh, or Big Sur, right? Big austere environments um, where Monterey is, is not, it's great diving, but it's not, it's tough diving. I'll say that. But even places like Big Sur or Northern California, which I have mad respect for, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not for the faint of heart. Um, or if they need data in, you know, remote environments like the Juno ice field in Alaska or whatever the case may be, these are scientists that don't have survival skills, right? Cause they, they spent the last 12, you know, 20 years of their life in, in school, <laughs> and probably skip PE. Right. <laughs> and so they, 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 there's a unique intersection between working with them on the data they need and recruiting veterans that have survival skills in those environments training them in the scientific protocols of how to collect that data and then hosting an expedition to send them off to collect that data on their behalf. And I was like, Oh, that sounds really cool. So I, their website was kind of wonky. You can only contact them by applying for their most recent expedition that they were launching, which was to Denali. And I'm originally from Florida. The highest point of elevation here is like <laughs> 46 feet on a golf course somewhere in Lakeland. I, think. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, mountains were not a thing for me growing up. And so, and I wasn't part of a mountaineering troop in, in, in the army either. Uh, I was air assault and then airborne special forces. And so I, um, so I, I submitted my application to this expedition and the expedition leader called me and she was like, Hey, you didn't get on the team. And I'm like, thank God. Cause I would have talked you out of it. <laughs> and she was like, but I see what you did. I sent your information over to the CEO and CFO. So I, I, next thing I know I'm on the conversation with them. We talked for like an hour and they're asking me a lot of leading open-ended questions. And I'm just like, you know, capping off with like, I just would like to be part of the team. I had already been part of some citizen science work, uh, both as a participant and in a, some leadership roles here and there. Not much, though. And I was like, I would just love to be part of the team for any ocean research stuff you guys are doing. Because they hadn't launched any ocean research stuff yet. Mm-hmm. It was kind of on their wish list on their website. And, uh, and they're like, no, no, you misunderstand. We're not talking to you just to try and have you be part of the team we're looking to you to launch our ocean research program and host our first ocean based expedition. Cool. And I'm like, I mean, it was, it was like my first real turning point into, wow. you know, making this a potential career for me, not just as a scuba instructor, but as an expedition leader. And I was like, in the back of my head, I'm like imposter syndrome. I'm in over my head. <laughs> I've bitten off more than I can chew every, every phrase you can think of. And then, that's all in my head. But then my mouth said, sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it, it ended up not being a problem. I, I, I put the first expedition together. We went down to Florida cause I was based out of California at the time. We came down to Pompano beach and did some coral reef research with reef check foundation, mm-hmm. uh, got them trained in, in protocols of laying transects and collecting data on coral reef bleaching uh, in colonies and invertebrate data, you know, um, algae, substrate, all that good stuff, fish IDs, and uh, collected some great data. And I went back and did my after action report with the CEO 
And uh, he's like, yeah, this is all great, man. You've dotted every I, crossed every T. This went off without a hitch. We need this type of organization on all of our expeditions, not just ocean research. So we'd like to make you director of operations. Wow. And again, just, <laughs> my mind is thinking cool. a million things and my mouth is like, I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> and then a year and then fast forward a year later, the CEO calls me and he starts talking about, you know, his competing, you know, priorities and with his family and some other things and some other endeavors he'd like to pursue. And um, he no longer wants to be the CEO of, of, of USX. And I'm thinking, man, he's just talking a lot to tell me I'm fired because the organization is shutting down. Right. right. Like this is can you just tell me that I'm fired so I can go sure coding it. Yeah. update my resume and figure something out. And then, and then he gets done with his spiel and he goes, so with all that said, I've talked with the board of directors and they've unanimously voted to elect you executive director if you want to take the position. And I'm like, this is amazing. Yes. And then the back of wow, my mind man. is like, I should probably go back to school and get a science degree <laughs> since I'm now the CEO of a scientific research agency. And that's really what led me down the path I'm on now. But, um, but that, that, you know, working with veterans and getting them connected with, with, with science is really just an extension of helping them continue their sense of purpose. You know, yeah. the, you know, we have extremely high suicide rates. I'm sure you heard 22 a day is, is the rate yeah. of, of suicide on average for, for military veterans. And, and it really is because when they transition out of the military service, civilian life is way more disorganized. Like, you know, when you're in the army, you know what to wear, you know where you're going to eat, you know what to do. You know, there's always a clear mission. I mean, not always a clear mission. I'll take that back. But, um, you know, you, you've got a clear focus for yeah. the most part on what you need to be doing. And so when you get out, it's like, what do I do now? And if you don't have a, a strong sense of purpose in that transition, you can get lost. And I got lost for a while myself. And I, my, my heart and sympathy goes out to all the veterans who are still trying to find their purpose in civilian life after military service. And so, you know, this is, this is just one of the many ways that we can get veterans involved and, and use some of their skill sets, especially where they feel useful, not just purposeful, but useful and saying, I've got these skills that the army taught me or the military taught me. Let me go out and put them to good use by doing something good with the environment and, and to help further scientific research and to, you know, and to build more camaraderie with, with other people who understand my plight as a veteran, you know, mm -hmm. while we're doing some good together in the world. And that's, that's a beautiful thing to me. Yeah. hundred percent. And that sense of purpose is key. I totally get it. And in tied to that too, and this is be a question in a second is, I mean, there's also that soothing nature of water for some people, right. Um, and the ocean is key for like a lot of us. And I know for me, it's like the, the ultimate, like, uh, relaxer, you know, <laughs> that I could possibly, you know, uh, surround myself with. And so do you see that kind of positive effect on some of the guys and gals you work with who maybe weren't ocean people before, you know, and yeah, the sense of purpose is there and they're really excited by it. But a side effect of them working with you with Force Blue or USX is they're like this connection with the ocean that actually gives them that soothing calmingness that the ocean can provide for some people. Yeah, I see that with with uh, everybody that I work with, not just veterans, but but especially it's more impactful for veterans. As much as I've seen it in myself in my own journey, as I reflect back on it, I, when I got involved in scuba diving, I had been out of the army for man almost almost ten years, and I was really lost. I had really severe, undiagnosed, unchecked PTSD. Uh, I got out of the army thinking, you know, with this huge machismo, like, oh, I've, I've got my head on my shoulder still, 10 mm -hmm. fingers, 10 toes. I'm physically okay, which means I'm okay. And without much regard for my mental health, without any emphasis on my mental health. And and so I was just running around being the most stereotypical veteran you could think of <laughs> with, with PTSD, getting involved in a lot of high-risk activity. I I thought it'd be great to be an MMA fighter that went okay <laughs> uh, with mixed results, not, not terribly poor, but mixed results and uh, you know, skydiving, which I'm still alive. So obviously that went well. And, um, and I, I was actually getting kind of bored with skydiving, especially in Florida. When, when you've seen one cow pasture from the sky, you've seen them all. <laughs> That's mostly what you see from up there. But you know, I, I thought my next big adventure was going to be diving with sharks. So I was like, once, once I had it in my head, you know, like I'm a, I'm a bull in a China shop, you know, I'm a bulldozer. I'm like, all right, this is what I'm going to do now. And 
So I just like the very next day, I thought of the idea. I went to a, a scuba shop. I, I had already a, had a, a family trip planned to Tarpon Springs in the in the Tampa Bay area, and I walk into a scuba shop and I'm like, I want to I want to go diving with sharks. And they're like, Whoa, hold on, there, buddy. There's some there's there's a lot of steps you're skipping over there, <laughs> including training and equipment and certification and all that stuff. And I was like, All right, well, whatever. Tell me what it is. And and they showed me and, and they told me how much it was. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'll be back in like four months when I get my tax yeah. return so I can afford all this. No, no, no 18 inch rims on my car this year. You know, that's normally what I spent my tax return on. Uh, adulting. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, yeah, I jumped in and like, that was the mindset. I was just like, just gung ho thinking it was going to be some big adrenaline filled adventure. And I tell you what, and again, I was a terrible student. Like, shout out to Stacy Goodrich for having like the most amazing like patience with me because I was just like all over the place. Like, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to get it done, and I was just you know not slowing down. My mind was working a million miles a minute, so that's the way my body and my and my words and my actions reflected as well. But when I got in the water, I had no choice but to slow down. I couldn't move as fast as as I normally do in uh, above service and and. You know, especially with my martial arts training that I had when I when I thought I was going to be an MMA fighter, a lot of the traditional styles that I practice had like meditative practices attached to their whole mm. system and, and lifestyle. But for the life of me, I could never clear my mind and meditate. I never felt the therapeutic yeah. effects of meditation. We'd sit for hours at Buddhist temples all over the world, and my friends would be like, "Oh, that was amazing!" and I feel rejuvenated. How do you feel, Anesti? And I'm like. I'm good. My my ankles hurt from sitting that way now for like four hours, but I'm good. I just kind of faked the funk because I'm just like I yeah. I, I was still thinking about you know my lunch that I ate last week or thinking about this right. thing that I have to do next week and you know it's just always living in the past or the future, mostly the mostly the past, you know, yeah, and and whatnot at the time and um and and there's when you have PTSD is different for a lot of veterans, but for me, it, it feels like white noise in my head. Like it's just constantly. And in order to drown that out, I have to like drown it out with like very proactive thoughts about things. So that's why I'm constantly having to think so I can drown Mm -hmm. out that white noise or else it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. And so I'm like, all right, though, the best way I can drown out that white noise is by thinking and doing. And so that's why I was always moving a million miles a minute, Mm -hmm. but underwater, Right. Once I got that neutral buoyancy, I became like, you know, I was fully submerged in water and all of a sudden I was able to just hyper focus on my breathing with neutral buoyancy. I was able to breathe in. Right. Once I got my BCD dialed in right where it needed to be and I was properly weighted, I would just breathe in. I would start to rise in the water column a little bit and then I'd breathe out slowly and I'd start to fall. And I could feel myself moving in the water column based on my breathing. That was just a very surreal kind of feeling. Yeah that I was able to really focus in on and it was therapeutic for me. And it gave me in that moment, a glimpse of what my, what, what I could feel like, like what my, what my natural state could feel like without PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, it, and wow. it was, and it was that turning point that let me know, like I've got a problem with PTSD that I need to seek out. So scuba diving didn't solve wow. all my problems, but it, it, it let me know that I had a problem. And to seek out therapy, which, which you know, I've been heavily involved in and, and have come a long way in in a lot of ways. And, you know, and even to this day, you know, it's kind of like a, a jokey thing now where, like, if it's been three or four more weeks since I've since I've gone diving, you know, I start to get cranky. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn it, the trash hasn't been taken out. Who's supposed to take out the trash today? And my wife is like, mm, when was the last time you went scuba diving, baby? It's like, I don't know. It's been like three or four weeks. Like. You should go this weekend. Yeah, and just leave it at that. You know, and here I'll like, take you. I'll, I'll yeah, load your stuff up for I'll you. I'll drive you. Let's let's yeah. go get your tanks filled. And so it's it's just one of those things because she knows that once I go diving, man, I'm good for at least two or three weeks. You know, just yeah. being calm. Like, hey, nobody took out the trash. Uh, I'll go get it myself. You know, and now it's not even a problem, right? But um, you know, that's uh, yeah. that's that's the effect PTSD has has on me. But I know everybody's different, so. You know, um, and and scuba diving hasn't worked for everybody. It's not like this life changing thing that's going to fix everybody who's who's gotten involved in it. Sometimes PTSD affects other veterans in a way where they they panic too much to be able to 
to just not be able to do it where we try to get them in the pool. We stay in the shallow end. We kind of dip our faces in, breathe off the regulator. All right. How is that? All right. Good. All right. Let's drop down to our knees and like maybe work on some skills like, you know, just taking the regulator out of our mouth and putting it back in see how that feels before we do like a full regulator recovery um, from over the shoulder kind of thing. And uh, you know, most of the time it works out, but sometimes, you know, there's panic and, and luckily when I'm working with people who have that anxiety and that panic, I'm able to stay calm with them because I can relate to them because I know what what kind of student I was and and just work with them on that. But at the same time, scuba isn't for everybody. I wish it was, but you yeah. know, you, you gotta you gotta introduce it to as many people as possible and, and see if it see if it works just like any other modality. Yeah, hundred percent. There's that kind of claustrophobia factor and just general, you know, um, comfort in the water that some people just don't have. And that's, that's totally cool. But I can really relate to like the quietness, quietness of the mind. And, you know, again, it's a theme that comes up with all of us, whether you sail or surf or fish or dive, there's, there are moments in all those sports and sometimes they're hard to get to, but when you just, everything else ceases to matter. And it's just like, you're totally in the moment, you know, and, and as you say, one of my favorite aspects of diving and it, and I'll be honest, I haven't dove in probably 10 years. I mean, I free dive a lot, but my hardcore diving days were a few years back was kind of like that, like 60 foot kind of range, right? When your air kind of gets sort of thinnish, where it's really easy to breathe, you know, it barely even takes any effort from your lungs. And then, like you said, that neutral buoyancy and the air flows in so simply. And then when you just get to that point where you you notice yourself breathing, you don't think about it. And you notice these long pauses in between, you're just so hyper-focused in the moment. And then to kind of lead into the next topic too, is when you're collecting data, right? So you could be down there just, just zenning out looking at stuff, but there's another aspect when you're also layering on, like you're recording stuff or you're measuring uh, a piece of algae or identifying that fish, or you're pulling a transect tape, where you're also like one other level removed from even remarking upon like your state of breath or anything. You're also doing work too. It's like this, beautiful union, you know, where you're just totally flowing, you know, so move into, if you will, you talked a lot about research and what are you doing today? I mean, you also mentioned the citizen, you know, um, monitoring work. Um, where did you start with that? And how did you initially just even get interested into, into marine research from the start? You know? Yeah. I, once I became scuba certified, I moved, uh, I got certified in Florida, uh, through that shop in Tarpon Springs. And I wasn't even certified less than a year. I was just kind of just getting my skills down and, you know, just uh, most of my, if not all of my dives in Florida were under my, under the supervision of my instructor or another instructor uh, from, from another shop that was like hosting a guided dive at like Rainbow River or Blue Grotto or some ocean dives down in um, Sarasota, like looking for megalodon teeth, you know, just it's kind of getting a sense of like what scuba diving could offer. And by the time I got to California less than a year later, my, I moved to Roner park in the North Bay in, uh, in Sonoma County. My wife was finishing her last year of Sonoma state, getting her bachelor's in fine arts and painting there. And she takes me to Bodega Bay and I'm, I'm wearing like board shorts and a, I'm, I'm ready for like a Florida beach. Right. <laughs> like, I've, never been, well, I've been to California before, but I've never been to California beach before. And, uh, and I take my sandals off and walk toward the water and I put my toe in and I freak the <laughs> fuck out. Like, like who in their right mind even wants to touch this water, let alone dive in it. Like, this is absurd, Seriously. you know? And, uh, you know, but I learned there's whole communities of people just like hardcore salt of the earth kind of people that just, just jump right in. Like that's, that's, that's their reality. That's what they know. And, um, I, you know, but I, I knew I wanted to continue along my scuba diving path. And so I got, um, before I got advanced open water certified, I actually started volunteering at the aquarium of the Bay. Hmm. And, um, when I started volunteering there, that was an excellent transition for me because I was able to, that was a place where I could acclimate to the cold of the water without having to worry about tide and current and stuff like that. Yeah. We, we pumped in water from the Bay and maintained its temperature for, for our California based exhibits. Um, so I was diving in a seven mil wetsuit, which man, when I put that thing on for the first time, I felt like the Michelin man, like oh, yeah. I, I'm from Florida. Like I'm <laughs> seven millimeters of neoprene. I'm like, man, I feel like I just, yeah. Like how many tires had to die to make this wetsuit? <laughs> and so, 
but yeah, you know, you just get used to it, I guess, you know, because diving was was the end goal, you know, regardless of the circumstances. And uh, so I started uh, volunteering at the Aquarium of the Bay. They trained me in some of the basics around, you know, broadcast feeding, underwater, uh, above water, you know, targeted feeds, broadcast feeds, animal observation, a lot of the tank maintenance that goes on there. And, and that was, that was a lot of fun. And, and from there, I felt more comfortable going out into the ocean. And my first dives were in an advanced open water course with a dive shop, uh, in the area. And they took me to like lover's point. And, um, we did our deep dive for advanced open water at North monastery. Cause oh, yeah. the, the boat was something was wrong with the boat that day. I think somebody bought a banana on it. It's, it's a whole thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know about the bananas, no bananas on the boat. Allowed ever. No bananas on the boat. <laughs> and so the boat broke down that day. So we had to do our deep dive off the North monastery. Uh, but I had a great instructor who really worked well with me. And I, I was like, all right, like, you know, with some modifications in this wetsuit and like, I don't know, 20 extra pounds of lead ballast weight on me <laughs> because of this wetsuit, like, you know, I can do it. And I, I started to not feel as cold as much. And you, you just get acclimated over time. But between working at Aquarium of the Bay, when I started to apply to Cal Academy of Sciences, uh, I wanted to volunteer there because they had more than just a California exhibit. They had like an Amazon exhibit um, yeah. where it looked like, like a freshwater Amazon rainforest. So they had alligator gar, which is like my most favorite fish. Like it's amazing. Yeah. It's like cool. it's like God took a gator head and a body of a fish and yeah. just plopped it together. <laughs> and there's an so alligator cool. gar for you. It's just a gnarly looking fish that looks like it hasn't evolved in in 40 million years. <laughs> and so I wanted to dive those exhibits, the, the coral reef exhibit to get full face mask training and do like present live presentations with underwater comms with people. Like that was like, that's the kind of stuff I want to do like education, you know, and like public awareness around coral reefs and around the oceans and stuff like that. Um, Cal Academy of Sciences never called me back. They, they kept, I applied like three different times and they kept losing my application. Um, <laughs> but like I would be in touch with diving services and they're like, hey, we need you and want you, like please apply. And then I'd have to go through volunteer services. And that there, that was the whole thing. But yeah. um, but I know, the, I know the DSO over at Cal Academy now. I serve on the committee with him at AAUS Foundation. He's awesome. But I don't even live in California anymore. I digress. I... <laughs> But long story short, when I was applying to Cal Academy of Sciences, when I found out about this organization called Reef Check Foundation, where they're like, hey, we do some Reef Check training here as well. And I was like, tell me more about that. So I, I got connected with the organization and mm -hmm. um, I applied to um, take one of their upcoming courses in Monterey. And that's where I met Dan Abbott, um, really awesome dude, and taught me so much about the ocean. Like, I, I mm -hmm. feel like, especially now that I'm even pursuing a, a degree in oceanography, like as, as a, as a, as a sophomore, I'm almost a junior now. I'm just now in my biology courses and marine biology courses that I'm taking, catching up to what I learned in one course uh, right. out at reef check around like fish ID and ecosystems and how they interact with each other. Man, I learned so much in a, in one citizen science course that that still accounts, I'd say for at least 80% or more of what I know about California's kelp forest ecosystems. Yeah, and that had cool. everything to do with Dan Abbott as the as the instructor and the reef check curriculum. I learned a lot, and we learned how to lay transects and and whatnot. And that put me on a path to like um, uh, being introduced to like uh, Dr. Selena McMillan and Tristan McHugh, who were other regional managers at the time, who were like amazing badass people that that I still look up to, that are still mentors of mine. I still keep in touch with them, and um, and. And it was, it was like, as I started ramping up with that citizen science work, coupled with my connection with USX, that all kind of came to a, a head. And I was like, I think I want to go back to school and get a science degree. And so I was talking to Tristan McHugh, who was the NorCal regional manager at the, at the time. And she was like, forget titles, forget, because I was like, oh, I want to be a marine biologist, because that's the natural thing you want to do when you want to work with the ocean. Like, even as a kid, that's like the one-stop shop to to work with the oceans, but there's so many more jobs. There's ecologists, there's oceanographers, yeah. there's ocean engineers, there's like amazing jobs out there. And she's like, just close your eyes and, and picture what you want to be doing. Just forget about degree titles, forget about jobs, forget about all that. Just tell me what you want to be doing. And I was like, I want to be, I want to do two things. I want to be at the forefront of ocean discovery. I want to be able to see things that nobody has seen before, whether I'm scuba diving or in a submersible or 
I guess I'll settle for, you know, looking on a video screen of, of a camera on a ROV that I'm piloting down there or something like that if I can't be down there myself. Right. But I want to I want to explore new depths. You know, I want to I want to see new things, new animals, new geological structures, new hydrothermal vents, new everything. And and when I'm not in the field doing that, that research, that, that you know, that forefront of discovery, I want to be a science communicator and, and public educator. I want to be able to be like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the oceans, the way yeah. he talks and inspires people around space. I want to be able to do that with the ocean and really talk more about our, our, our almost spiritual like connection mm-hmm. to the ocean and, and what that is for us. And more importantly, obviously the dire circumstances around climate change. And, and after I got done sharing all that with her, she's like, you don't want to be a marine biologist. Like they stare down a microscope in a lab, like 85% of the time <laughs> you want to be an oceanographer. They do considerably more field research. And so I started doing some research around the top oceanography programs and, Scripps came up and Woods Hole, but they, they don't have an undergrad program. You know, a few places came up, but um, Florida Tech was the one that consistently started coming up in the top five. And I, I know coming from Florida originally, it has a low cost of living. And that was a, a major factor for me because yeah. I got gentrified out of, out of the Oakland Bay area uh, around that same time as well. And uh, Florida was just a good fit for me all around. So that's why I'm here. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great story too, is finding that, um, your passion for marine research and the animals and the, the ecosystems and the processes, you know, because it is fascinating, you know, and it's interesting because typically folks I speak with who are in the science field, they knew they wanted to do that from day one when they're like two years old, you know, and they just pursued that path. And then here they are. And it's it's always neat to hear people's life stories, a, a kind of an end around way to get where you're at today based on so many other things you did being in the army being a physical physical oceanographer too, like the two apples and oranges, <laughs> yeah. there, you know. So it's just neat that the way your path has led you to where you are today. And one thing too, I, I want to kind of plug a little bit is the aspect of that citizen monitoring and what you're mentioning is reef check. And I spent some time with reef check when I was at the uh, Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. We worked directly with them because we were doing a lot of data collection and reef check. We'd help them out and vice versa. But it's for folks listening, and really, it's like think about you yourself as an individual who might just like to walk on a beach or you do scuba dive or you sail, whatever it's when you go do those things, the ability to collect some information in a, in a, in a, in a structured way that can fold into like larger, the larger story into larger data sets that are collected and maintained by, you know, legitimate scientific organizations. And it's so key because like what you're doing is you're bringing divers down. They're trained on a certain protocol, how to either measure fish you know, look at algae, whatever that is, and then bring that data back because there's not thousands and thousands of marine biologists out there who are diving every day looking at the ocean. It's like, so when you spread that across the citizens, all of us, it just, it really amplifies and, and just broadens the amount of information that can be collected that goes to larger picture. And so you still sort of support the reef check stuff out there in Florida where you are today? Yeah, actually, I'm I'm leaving next week. I'll be gone out of from my hometown here all of next week to go through ReefCheck Tropical Instructor Training with oh, nice. uh, Alex Broski, who's like a course director uh, down here. He's a, a living legend in the in the Florida area, and he's an alum of, of Florida Tech as well. So we were able to connect on that level. And I, yeah, I I still fully support citizen science, and it's it's been a major factor. And as you said there's way more data to be collected than there are scientists and researchers mm-hmm. that, that can collect it. So, you know, citizen science has a tremendous value in being able to provide people on a, on a moderate level, on, on almost an undergraduate level. Like I said, you know, um, Dr. Selena McMillan, who has a PhD in marine science, is, is the regional manager for a citizen science organization. And, and she said it best, like, you know, especially now that I've seen both sides of the coin between citizen science and, I guess you could call it a- academically credentialed science. It's that's not different at all. Yeah, like, yeah, it's the yep. citizen science work that people are being trained in, the protocols that they're being trained in to be able to go out and collect data, whether they're scuba diving or they're taking hikes through nature trails and doing bird identification, you know, for the Audubon Society or whatever the case may be. That that is not anything unlike what undergraduate students learn how to do, you know, yep. in, with with a with a degree. Uh, as they pursue a degree. So it's like, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, it's not comparing apples to oranges at all. And, but for me personally, my personal journey, like you said, how unique, like, you know, there are a lot of people who are scientists now, 
uh, many of them knew from a very early age they wanted to be a scientist. I had the kind of lifestyle where being a scientist or, or having even the possibility of having PhD at the end of my yeah. name or doctor at the front of my name was just a foreign language, man. You're, like, you're talking nonsense. Like I would have you committed <laughs> because that just, that was, I just didn't feel that was in the cards for me. But, yeah. but I, I fell into scuba diving by, I always loved the ocean in a lot of ways. And I've always lived around the ocean in, in a number of ways and been involved in other conservation projects, just kind of like for fun, but not really seeing it as a career focus uh, at that, at that age. Um, you know, I, I lived a whole lifetime of trauma even before I joined the army. And yeah. so it was, I was just constantly in survival mode where like, you know, by the time I got into scuba diving, you know, uh, I didn't even know I could be a scuba diver until I just showed up to a scuba shop and said, how do I become a scuba diver? And they told me and I, we figured it out. And then scuba diving made it possible for me to be interested in citizen science. So I got involved in that as, as a may, oh, as a way of, using my my scuba diving skills you know for for a good purpose you know that, that yeah. was that was my focus and then through citizen science and my my work through there between reef check and through usx and now with my connection to force blue being onboarded here it the that experience made it possible for me to to consider the possibilities that i really could be a scientist and and in a few years i could be called dr anesti <laughs> vega like that it, it all came to fruition but it all started with with an introduction to yeah. scuba diving that, that made the rest of those dominoes kind of fall in line um, yeah. to where I am now. That's awesome, man. I, I, I really admire you for being where you're at in life. Like you're not 15, you know, you're not just like full of hope and wonder and anything's possible when you're that age, you know, you're, <laughs> you have kids, you have family, you have, you have commitments and still you are pursuing your dreams. It's really easy. I think as we get older, middle ages, I'm guessing you're 40 ish, probably around the same age. I am. I'm, uh, I turned, I turned 39 in two weeks. All right. So there you go. It, it yeah. just gets harder to like, because you you have things you have to take care of. It's really hard to take care of all those things, commitments, and then also pursue your passion. What's next, you know? So I think that's, that's really cool. You've it's done been that. amazing just to, to the support that I've had from my wife and kids. My kids are like super excited all the time, That's um, rad. you know, and, and from my community, man, I've, I've had so many people, you know, when I, you know, the more transparent I've been uh, about pursuing this new career path, you know, with my community, the more people reached out to me, you know, sent me messages saying like, you know, Hey, please post as many updates as you can, because I've always That's wanted cool. to work with the ocean and I never thought it was a possibility for me. So I'm just yeah. kind of like, looking at your feed and just living vicariously through you at this point. And I'm like, yeah. man, that's amazing. And it's inspiring. And it's also a lot of pressure, you know, because I, I can't, you know, it's not just me now and it's not just my family. I'd never want to let my family down, but now I've got my community on my back, you know, uh, that I'm carrying through to, to see this through because I'd, I'd be one of the first, you know, uh, from, from my, I'd definitely be the first for my family to, to have a degree, let alone a PhD. And, um, you know, and one of the first in my community to pursue ocean sciences as a, as a degree is, yeah. uh, you know, and, and as a career, it's, it's been, it's been a wild ride. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. That's great. And just to touch back to, you mentioned a person that I also rem remark upon the same way, Selena McMillan, when I was kind of coming up through my, you know, scientific dive training <clears throat> and she was at Moss Landing Marine Labs. I think she's probably a couple of years. She's already in like, I think her graduate work and so already like just absolute badass in the water like, oh yeah you know, i mean just a stud but also just so nice such a great presence to have when it's cold and you're wet and it's just like a long day and then you know so i have great memories of her too and she was very very inspirational back then i was just looking her up when you mentioned her and so yeah man it's probably getting back to that community aspect of just you know not so much a mentor, but just an icon, a figure that just kind of, you know, keeps you going at times, you know, having those, those relationships with people. Um, yeah. I met Dr. McMillan on a, on a four day live aboard for the big Sur expedition that ReefCheck does every year. It's four yeah, days. Man. We go out to a really remote area of big Sur, And, and I had just become an instructor, but for, for the, for the about year or so before that, I was diving mostly in like training environments. So I was either in the pool or like in breakwater, you know, in, in pool like yeah. settings as best I could, you know, going through my dive master and instructor training, working with students, working in, in pools and training environments. And then my very first like big, you know, expedition outside of training environments was this four day live aboard upon Big Sur. And I was not prepared mentally or physically. And Selena, 
Dr. McMillan and and so many other people, especially people that came down from Humboldt State University and the yeah. whole NorCal region. Those oh, yeah. are those people, like people are a different breed, like the yeah. people there. They and they they made me look bad just by before we even <laughs> took our first dive. And I I was you know how I said I was a problem open water student. I was a problem. Uh, scientific diver on that trip, man. I <laughs> I forgot some of my medications, so I started like, so like oh, I missed the last two days of diving. On on day two of the diving, Dan Abbott gave me a GoPro to stick on my slate to be able to get some footage, and I lost the damn thing. <laughs> and it was like, oh my god, like what is wrong with me? I looked like a total sandbagger. That's a military term. Like when just, it was bad, but you know, but I was able to recover from it and, and still do more and better things with, with reef check, just knowing like, oh, yeah, and getting acclimated too. But yeah, I mean, that was my first introduction to her and I was just in awe, like man, her yeah. and all the other cool people from, from Humboldt yeah. and NorCal just coming together in these really remote things. Cause Big Sur is no joke. Like I tell my students in Monterey, if you can learn to dive in California, you can dive anywhere. Pretty yeah, much. No, there's there's zero question about that. Um, what what year do you think that was when you did that Big Sur trip? That was 2018, June of 2018. Oh, okay. so that was very recent. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, because we did a stretch again when I was working for the sanctuary, probably f- three or four years of that s- same kind of format, four or five days, Big Sur coast, probably probably surveying the same sites that you guys were going to. Yeah. And oh, I mean, it's like it's those are like the best days of my life. I mean, other than like kids and stuff like that and family, but like just being in that area, which, you know, you hear you, people say big stars are favorite place in the world. People go, Oh yeah, sure. But unless you've been there and seen that, like it is absolutely magical and it's hard. Oh. Like you said, you're not just diving and lounging in the sun. It's like, dude, it's 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You're slipping tanks, loading boats, getting the boats off, and it's bumping, and you almost fell, and that tank almost hit that person in the head, and then you're down, and then you're up, and then it gets gnarly. That's before but it's, you even get in the water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then if you're not careful, that surge, man, can push you in, and you're wrapped yeah. up, up like a burrito. Oh, yeah. I, especially you had opportunity to see those places because it's like, you know, I, if there's anything close to pristine these days in co- coastal California, which is really challenging to really probably find a place, I think that could be one of those locations, you know. I uh, so I think it's awesome you had a chance to see that. So then, Anessi, like, let's kind of tie this thing together. So where you're at now, you know, you're you're heavily involved. You're just getting ramped up with Force Blue. So that's a big chunk of time. You have a family, big chunk of time. Pursuing education, higher education, big chunk of time. So, where do you see all this kind of, um, you know, coming together? Let's say you get the degree done. What does that look like for you after that? For me, it's it's about continuing the work and and really expanding the work that I'm already doing, especially around diversity in aquatics, diversity in scuba. I work with a nonprofit. I'm the scuba council chair for diversity in aquatics, and that's really the umbrella for a lot of the work that I do. Um, you know, around the workshops and webinars that I've been doing online, especially in the midst of the pandemic and just Mm -hmm. going virtual as much as possible and just sharing a lot of information around ocean sciences and the much needed diversity that's needed in ocean sciences. And much like I shared my story, being a scientist was, was a a foreign concept, you know, if, 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 unless I was involved in citizen science and that was a foreign concept if I, if I wasn't a scuba diver based on what I wanted to do. And so, you know, going back, it's like, oh, we should get more people of color and more, you know, marginalized people, LGBTQ plus and veterans and people with disabilities involved in ocean sciences and, and addressing climate change as a whole because, you know, we want to make sure everybody has a seat at the table. Well, that's all said and good. It's great intentions. But getting involved in, in sciences is, is a foreign concept, especially ocean sciences, if you don't even have a comfort level with the water. So it's about meeting people where they're at. And, and I want to do more of that. I want to do more public education um, I recently did a talk with Dr. Sylvia Earle. That was a surreal experience. Uh, um, there was a lot of fanfare leading up to that. Yeah. Like the Florida Tech like magazine was reaching out to me to do an interview with me about it. Like, you know, to be able to sit down, cool. you know, and I'm in this weird place between both student and professional in, in a lot of ways, you know, especially at Florida Tech. And um, once I got done with the talk, I'm just sitting here at my computer, like where I'm sitting now. And I'm just like, my wife is coming over, giving me a hug. Congratulations. And, I'm just like, that really happened. Like, I really just got to talk for like an hour and a half with two amazing individuals, Dr. Sylvia Earle and Liz Taylor, the the director yeah. for the Deep Ocean Exploration Research. And I'm like, about diversity in uh, in aquatics and 
and in scuba and in ocean exploration. I got to talk about like the contextual history for especially black and indigenous people around our historical disconnect from water because of colonization and forced relocation, all these, and you know, that, that wow. play a role today in, in the, the disparities that we have in, in drowning and, and water safety for marginalized communities. And uh, I was just like, wow, I got to do all that with Dr. Sylvia Earle, like one of the biggest platforms you can, you can think of right now, you know, in terms of a, a living legend in our field. Yeah. And then, and then I'm just sitting there and then all of a sudden reality sank in. And I'm like, shit, I have calculus homework that to do by midnight. <laughs> <laughs> Back to reality. <laughs> Back to reality. <laughs> and it's just, um, that's the weird place that I live in. But once, once I'm finished <laughs> with this degree, I, I'm, I'm, I have a firm belief that I can dedicate 100% more into the, the work that I'm already doing, you know, that I'm side hustling, you know, as I pursue this degree around yeah. doing more talks with, with more people and more platforms and, and, you know, really um, moving the needle on creating more accessibility to um, water safety as a start um, that, that can be, you know, further into scuba diving and ocean sciences from there. That's great, man. Well, you're going to do it. There's no, zero doubt there. And I'm going to keep tracking because this story, I mean, <clears throat> you need to write a book or have a movie made about you at some point. I know your story is not over yet, but uh, it's fascinating, <laughs> man. And, and I really appreciate all you're doing. I think like, you know, honestly, like and, and when I was reading about you and your biography and just then thinking about today and and so I dove in and really kind of felt the amount of effort and time you put into that, as you mentioned, the diversity in aquatic sports. It's like, that's something that's kind of brandish new. I mean, I've just grown up in the water from day one and never, honestly never thought about it just because it was never, you know, like all inclusive for me because I grew up in the beach and in the water and I had these things. I never thought about it, but now it is so important. I think it's so, again, admirable that you could choose to have pursued like your own personal interests in terms of like, I want to be an oceanographer or I just want to go, you know, spear big fish or do other, other things. But you've, you've chosen to, to blend your love of the ocean for others, you know, for the sake of others as well. And so I just think that's, that's awesome, man. So I appreciate that and appreciate you sharing with us today. Very, 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 very much. Yeah, I, I wanted to share one more story that kind of reminds me every day that I think about every day that, that kind of keeps me motivated to, to do more of what I do. And it yeah. was when I was volunteering at the Aquarium of the Bay as, as a diver, there were there were so many instances where um, my, well, almost every Saturday when I was there, my kids would be there with me with my wife and they'd go through the tunnels. If you're familiar with the Aquarium of the Bay, there's tunnels that run under the the tanks. And, you know, I interact with my kids, I interact with lots of other kids, you know, giving them little daps, you know, through the glass, mm -hmm. through the acrylic glass in the tunnels and, you know, doing little fun dances and, you know, dabs and, and all that stuff, you know, just funny little things to, to keep the kids motivated uh, and engaged, you know, with, with things that were happening in the tank. Um, but there was, there was one particular instance where I got out and my wife was like, hey, um, did you see that, that, um, that older lady that was behind the kids whenever you were, like, waving to them and giving them daps? And I was like, uh, maybe. I wasn't really paying attention. And she goes, um, she goes I, I was really, like, I'm, I'm still kind of shaking from it. Like, I'm really upset. And I'm like, what happened? She goes, when the kids saw you, they ran up to you because they recognized you, right? Because there were, like, two or three other divers in, in the tank as well. They ran up to you. And, and with the other, with a couple of other kids and Gio, my son, who was only like seven, I think at the time, something like seven or eight was like, that's my poppy. That's my dad right there. And the kids were like, oh, wow, cool. And this lady was like, why on earth would you think that that's your father? Like, he's just a scuba diver. And I'm like, <laughs> And, and, but it's it's a it's a it's a scenario, right? And because that is my dad, and she's like, okay, and I was all sassy about it, and walked away, and that was it. And my wife was just standing there, kind of in shock, like, would you question? Uh, you know, these are two little brown yeah. kids saying that's their dad in that tank. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, would you would you you know? And it's a it's a super hypothetical. Don't get me wrong, but like, yeah, would, get, yeah. would she have questioned it if there were two little white kids saying that was her yeah. their dad? Or, maybe, or. maybe not. But at the same time you know, I reflect back on that story quite often, almost every day. And I want to be able to be able to create a world, you know, my, my whole motivation yeah. is to create a world where that's normal, where, where it could be normal. where like, Oh, that is your dad. That's cool. And you're not questioning two Brown kids about whether that's their dad or not. 
you know, that, that opens them up a whole other can of worms, right? Yeah. Cause that, cause that is their dad. And, uh, and I want it to be more people's dads and moms and brothers and sisters getting involved mm-hmm. in that way to, to normalize, uh, people of color involved in, in ocean and, and water and, and for all marginalized communities. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. Well, great closing words. And uh, again, thanks for all that you're doing and uh, raising awareness within all of us folks listening, you know. Uh, so, Nessie, thanks again and uh, appreciate you being here today, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks to you and to George for the connection. And I look yeah. forward to more of your episodes. And uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch, man. This has been awesome. Very cool, man. Good luck. And thanks so much. And thanks, George. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.